evening, Rabbi. Thank you. Good evening. Okay, good evening, and welcome uh, once again to our class on the Rebbe's Sicha, on the talk from the Rebbe. Uh, today we're going to, it's going to be a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to be studying different parts of uh, some Sichas and then a teaching from the Rebbe's father. And then we're going to end off with a short uh, part of the Sicha from 1985, with a very profound, interesting insight uh, on the topic that we will be discussing. Uh, but um, first I'd like to start off with giving charity. I'd like to thank Judy for reminding me of my commitment that we're going to start off the classes with giving charity. Everything in Judaism comes easier when you do it after giving charity. In fact, there's this concept that before we do a mitzvah to give charity, uh, before men put on tefillin in the morning, it's customary to give charity. Before women light Shabbos candles or holiday candles, they should give charity. It's actually a very opportune time to give charity. And therefore also, before starting a Torah class, it's one of the good times to give charity. Obviously, this only applies to a day when it is appropriate to give charity. It's appropriate to handle money. On Shabbos and on the holidays, it's inappropriate, and therefore we don't do it. Okay, this week's parasha, parasha Shmini, so happens to be that it's in fact the second week that we are studying the same parasha. Uh, the way it works in, in, in the Jewish uh, cycle of reading the Torah, every week has a parasha for that week. Um, and it doesn't just mean that on Shabbos we're going to read that parasha. What it means is that the entire week we are dealing with the theme of the parasha, with the lessons of the parasha. Um, there is a concept of reading the section for that day. The, the parasha is split up into seven sections. And so on Sunday, we read the first section, we learn it, we learn it with the, the commentary of Rashi, and then the second day, we learn the second section, and so on, on, until Shabbos, until the seventh day. However, however, there is an interesting, um, it, it does depend on Shabbos, because there is, there are times where on Shabbos, we are not going to read the weekly Parsha. If Shabbos, also happens to be a holiday, if it happens to be Pesach or Sukkot or something like that, instead of reading the parasha that we're up to, we read something that is associated with Pesach. Um, so for example, this past Shabbat, three days ago, was, it was Shabbos, but it was also Shvi Yishal Pesach. It was the seventh day of Pesach, which is a holiday. And it, it commemorates the day that the Jewish people crossed the Red Sea. So instead of reading Parashas Shmini three days ago on Shabbos in Shul, we read a portion of the Torah that talks about the splitting of the Red Sea. So now what happens to Shmini? It gets bumped to the next week, to the next Shabbos. So the previous week, the previous week, the entire week of, of uh, the entire week of Pesach. Um, we were actually reading Parashas Shmini to ourselves. We were studying the theme of Parashas Shmini from the end of the, the, the previous Shabbos, which was Parashat Tzav. On Sunday, which was the first day of Pesach, we started reading the portion of Shmini, reading the first portion and then the second one on Monday and then Tuesday. But then when it came to Shabbos, we did not read the Parashat of Shmini on Shabbos in Shul. We read something about the splitting of the Red Sea. So now on Sunday, it restarted again. So we're actually, the Jewish world is dealing with the themes and the lessons of the parasha of Shmini for two weeks already. 
there are some times where we would reach Shmini three times. That's actually a very fascinating concept, but if, basically if the first day of Pesach is on Shabbos, the last day of Pesach will be on Shabbos. So both that first Shabbos and the second Shabbos, we'll be reading Passover-oriented themes, uh, portions of the Torah, and then only on the third Shabbos we would read it. But this year, it turns out we're only reading Shemini twice. So this week, again, we're going to Shemini, and this coming Shabbos, we're going to be reading Shemini um, in the shul. So at, towards the end of the parasha, starting from the sixth section, um, God communicates to Moshe and Aaron the laws, uh, some of the laws of kosher. The laws of kosher are vast. There are a lot of details to kosher laws. Um, you know, it governs everything that we eat, the way we prepare our food. Um, and by the way, even fruits and vegetables, not necessarily is every fruit and vegetable kosher, especially if you live in the land of Israel. If you live in the land of Israel, there are many uh, situations that may come up that can render the food uh, not permissible for consumption. So um, in general, the laws of kosher are vast and there's a lot that goes into them. And therefore it's actually very important to have, um, to have guidance in the laws of kosher. And that's one of the reasons why we have kosher certification. If you see, if you see, um, just a moment here. If you see something with kosher certification, you can be pretty sure that it is kosher. Uh, otherwise, you should be careful and not, not get involved with it. So in this week's parsha, we learn about the laws of kosher animals. Um, when Adam was created, he was prohibited from killing in order to eat. He was not allowed to kill animals or fish or anything like that. He was only able to eat uh, fruits and vegetables. However, after Noah, after Noah survived the flood, God told him, you are allowed to kill in order to eat. Um, but he did not give him any type of restrictions. The only restriction that he gave Noah was, if you want to eat the flesh of an animal, you have to kill it, and then you are able to eat from it. You're not allowed to uh, you know, chop off an arm or a leg from a cow or anything and eat it while it's still alive. That's called Aver Minachai, eating meat or anything from an animal that is still alive. So that's the only prohibition that's relevant to all of humanity. Uh, but people were allowed to eat anything and they were allowed to prepare it in any way they'd like, as long as the animal was dead. Then comes uh, the Jewish people leave Egypt and they receive the Torah. And now there's a whole new element of kosher diet that is introduced to the Jewish people. And now you can't just eat whatever you want. There are certain animals you're allowed to eat. There are certain birds you're allowed to eat. And there are certain fish that you're allowed to eat. And grasshoppers, by the way. Grasshoppers are kosher, but not all of them. Only certain ones are kosher. Uh, but that, that's a topic for a different time. But it's also mentioned in this week's parasha as well, the grasshoppers. So we're going to deal, today we're going to be dealing with kosher livestock, kosher birds, and actually not really kosher birds. We're going to be dealing with kosher fish as well. Um, yeah. So. Let's, uh, before we get into the details of what makes something kosher and what does not make it kosher, I would just like to give this general introduction. Um, and that is the following. There are three types of mitzvahs in the Torah. There are mitzvahs that are called mishpatim, laws that even if the Torah was never given to us, we would have to um, adopt these laws on our own because that's the only way that our society can run in a normal fashion. Do not steal, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. These are all laws that are completely logical 
and uh, technically you don't need the Torah in order to put them in place to inform you that they are necessary. The next level or the next type of mitzvot are edus, testimonies. These are mitzvahs that we do in order to remember something, in order to make a statement about something that happened to us in the past. For example, the mitzvah of Shabbos, the reason why we observe the Shabbos is in order to remember that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The reason we eat matzah on Pesach is to commemorate the fact that the Jewish people left Egypt in a hurry and uh, they eat matzah and so on and so forth. All of these mitzvahs there in the category of testimonials, which means that we wouldn't come with, up with it on our own, but once God gave it to us, they make a lot of sense, and it's something that we could actually relate to and appreciate on a logical level. And then there is the, the category of chukim. Chukim is, is typically translated as statutes. These are laws that make no sense. They transcend all logic. Not only would we not, would we not initiate or would we not adopt such laws on our own, but even after we got them from God, we really can't understand why exactly we have them. One of the mitzvahs that are unequivocally part of that category of, of, of chukim are the laws of kosher. The laws of kosher have no logical explanation. Now, those that want to say that the laws of kosher was, you know, it, it, was, it, it served the Jewish people well in those days because there was no refrigeration or all of these other, I mean, I find them to be very, very silly explanations. Uh, they hold no weight when you start to understand or you start to realize the vastness of, uh, of what kosher is all about. If you start to get into the details, they, they make absolutely no sense. And uh, in fact, every aspect of, of kosher doesn't really make much sense. And they're all chukim what you're allowed to eat, how to prepare them for consumption, etc. They're all unequivocally in the category of chukim. Now, that doesn't mean that there is nothing about them that could be appreciated. That doesn't mean that there's nothing about them that can't be explained. What that means is that at their core, there are things that defy explanation. They are not set in place because of some type of logical explanation. Uh, they transcend all logic. And therefore, when we deal with kosher, number one, we have to first um, learn what does the Torah tell us about it and how these laws apply in a practical sense in our day-to-day -day life. And then beyond that, we are able to take the facts of the laws of kosher and start to understand and appreciate the meaning behind all of these laws. So with that being said, let's go into the sources that are being provided here in the handout. Let's go on page two. God spoke to Moses and Aaron, telling them to speak to the Israelites and convey the following. Of all the animals in the world, these are the ones that you may eat. Among mammals, you may eat any that has split hooves and that chews its cud. So the two signs are split hooves, which means first of all, it has to have a hoof. If it's a cat or a dog that has paws, for sure it's not kosher. So, for, so it has to have a hoof. But once it has a hoof, that's not enough. It has to be a split hoof. A horse is not kosher because it has a hoof, but it's not split. A cow, a sheep, a goat, they have split hooves. And it needs to chew its cud, which means that when it eats its food, it doesn't fully digest it. it get, you know, he spits it up into his mouth again, and he chews it again. Um, and depending on the animal, some of them chew their cud twice and some of them four times, depending on their, their system. 
But the point is that these two, these are the two signs, split hooves and chewing its cud. However, among the cud chewing hoofed animals, these are the ones that you may not eat. The camel shall be unclean to you, although it chews its cud, since it does not have split hooves. The hyrax shall be unclean to you, although it chews its cud, since it does not have split hooves. The hare shall be unclean to you, although it chews its cud, since it does not have split hooves. The pig shall be unclean to you, although it has split hooves, since it does not chew its cud. Do not eat their flesh, nor touch their carcasses, since they are unclean to you. So the Torah did not suffice by telling us, if you have these two, great, go and eat them. If it doesn't have both of them, don't eat them. The Torah went into detail. The Torah said that while I'm telling you that you have to have these two signs in order to eat it, don't say that if you have one and not the other, it's, it's good enough. No, there are four animals that have one and not the other. And I'm telling you clearly that those are not kosher. The camel, the hyrax, the hare, and the pig. You know, I'm sure you're wondering why is it that at least in Jewish culture, pig, chazer, that's like, like, that's like, that's like one of the biggest insults, right? It's like, it shows on, on the complete opposite of kosher. You know, if you look at it from, from this standpoint, it would seem that a pig is better than a dog. A dog does not have split hooves or chew its cud. A pig at least has split hooves, right? At least it has one of them and not the other. So perhaps uh, a dog should be the greatest uh, expression or, or, the, or the, I say, the icon for the opposite of kosher. But we see that, no, pig is. And by the way, pig is not the only one that has one and not the other. The camel chews its cud and doesn't have split hooves. So why don't we say the camel is the epitome of uh, the opposite of kosher. By the way, I'm, I'm holding myself back from saying treif, right? Everyone, everyone is, is familiar with the concept of this kosher and this treif. The reason I'm, I'm not using the term treif here is because treif is a very specific type of non-kosher. Treif means, it, it actually, it's not Yiddish. It comes from a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word treifa. Trefa means like this. Let's say you have a kosher animal, a cow. But that cow was not killed in accordance with Jewish law. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, if that cow was, let's say, attacked by a lion, okay? He got attacked by a lion and the lion, you know, put his, his, his uh, you know, he, he bit into him or whatever it was. So there's a whole host of laws that govern the fact that if you have a kosher animal that was slaughtered according to Jewish law, however, that animal was ill with a type of illness that it would not survive for 24 hours, so then you have to, um, it, it's, it's not good for consumption. Trefa literally means torn. If it was torn apart, if it was sick, and there's actually a very specific definition in the Code of Jewish Law, what type of, what, what does trefa mean? So then this is not kosher. But that's not the only type of non-kosher meat that's out there. I mean, treif just means that this cow that was slaughtered according to Jewish law was not healthy enough to be considered kosher. That's treif. And if you have a cow that was shot, 
it's not treif, now it's nevela. It means it's dead and it was not killed in the proper fashion. Or if let's say the cow just died, then that's called nevela, which means a carcass. If you have a horse, horse meat is not treifa. Horse meat is from, a, from an animal which is not kosher, which is tame, unclean, impure. So I'm just, I'm just giving you a little bit of context of why I'm not, typically um, in American Judaism today, maybe even by others, it's usually the, 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 going, uh, the going expression is kosher or treif. So horse meat is treif and this, everything is treif. But really, specific, really it, it, that's, not, that's not really a, a real way of using that term. Anyway, back to our discussion. Why is it that the pig is considered the epitome of unkosherness, while the camel, which also has one and not the other, is not necessarily considered so bad, and the dog and the cat and all of that, they're not considered the epitome of the opposite of kosher. Why specifically the pig? And the reason is because the pig has one and not the other. But which one does it have? You see, the two signs that these animals have in order to be kosher, one of them is seen to everyone. Everyone can see if it has split hooves. But chewing its cud, you have to know a little bit about the animal. You have to know a little bit about their anatomy in order to know if it's chewing its cud or not. The camel chews its cud. Uh, the camel chews its cud. Doesn't have split hooves, so the camel can't even fake that it might be kosher. The pig has split hooves, so it shows everybody, hey, look, I've got split hooves, I'm kosher. But really inside of him, he ain't kosher because it doesn't chew its cut. So that's like one of the reasons why the pig is like the epitome of the unkosherness and it's like so un-Jewish because it's not just the fact that it has one and not the other, it doesn't have any of the signs. It's that the one sign that it does have, it can fool someone into saying, hey, I'm kosher, when really it's not. In other words, we really don't like when something presents itself as what it's not. Anyway, it's not the pig's fault. That's how it was created. And that's fine. But in fact, by the way, according to Jewish tradition, when Mashiach will come, the nature of the pig will change and the pig will start to chew its cud and the pig will be kosher. That's just a wild fun fact for you to know. But that's not relevant now because Mashiach is not here. The pig still does not chew its cud and therefore bacon is unequivocally not kosher. All right. So we have here, the Torah tells us, these are the two signs for a kosher animal chewing its cud and has split hooves. Let's go to the water, to the aquatic animals. This is what you may eat of all that is in the water. You may eat any creature in the water, whether in seas or rivers, that has fins and scales. Any creature in the seas and rivers that does not have fins and scales, whether swarming creatures or any creatures of the water, they are an abomination for you, and an abomination they shall remain. Do not eat their flesh and shun their carcass. Every aquatic creature without fins and scales must be shunned by you. Okay. Now here is the big question. There's many big questions in Judaism, but here's the big question about the kosher animals. Chewing its cud and split hooves, does that make the animal kosher? Or does that show us that this is a kosher animal? You might think to yourself, what's the difference, Rabbi? Come on, stop, stop making everyone mushug. 
And the answer is there are some differences that come at, that can come as a result of determining which one it is. Do the signs make it kosher, or do the signs just tell us, "Hey, this is kosher"? Now, this is discussed in various areas of, of Torah literature. You know, I'll give you an example of what what, what uh, the difference, uh, whether it makes it kosher or if it just shows us that it is kosher. There is a law that if, let's say, a cow, a cow would give birth to a, a, a child, yeah, like a calf, but this calf um, has a deformity. The deformity of the calf is that its hooves are not split. Okay? So it's missing one of the kosher signs. So the law is the following. If you know without a shadow of a doubt that this calf came from this cow, no matter what, I mean, the deformity of the calf not having a split hoof is not a problem. It could be eaten. It could be eaten. Why? Because it came from a kosher cow. There is a certain deformity that causes it to become non-kosher. For example, if it's like a Siamese twin cow that's got two backs, then it's a, it's a problem. Uh, but... Uh, but if it just doesn't have split hooves, its hooves are, are, are you know, it's, it's one piece, you could eat it. Now the question is, is this a rule that makes no sense or is this a rule that does make sense? If you tell me that the signs of a kosher animal is what makes it kosher, then uh, this cow is kosher not because it makes any sense. It's just kosher because that's what the Torah said. Since this calf came from this cow and the cow is kosher, so then you're able to eat it. But if the signs of kosher are just an indication that this is a kosher animal and has nothing to do with its kosherness or not, then it makes a lot of sense. The fact that it doesn't have split hooves is not an issue. We know for a fact it came from this mother, so it's kosher. Be it as it may, there are arguments to both directions, uh, but there is somewhat of a consensus that, it, the mo that most probably uh, the kosher signs here, let's put it this way. Whether the kosher signs make a kosher or just indicate that they are kosher, one thing is clear. The kosher signs have something to do with kosher. Now, the rule is you are what you eat. And therefore, it's, uh, it's an accepted concept that one of the reasons why God instructed us in the laws of kosher was in order that the food that we digest, the food that becomes part of us, should enhance our spiritual life should enhance our Jewish involvement, should enhance the ability of our soul to shine through our bodies. Eating kosher food allows our body to be a proper vessel for our souls, allows our bodies to allow our souls to work through us and to guide us through our spiritual journey during our lifetime. Non-kosher food messes things up. Now, since the signs of kosher animals are that which tell us we're allowed to eat this animal or not. It is, um, it, it is self-understood, and we are taught in Judaism, especially in Hasidic teachings, that there is a specific lesson that we could learn from these signs. So let's go to source three. This is from the Rebbe. The kosher animal, I'm sorry, source, source two, page three. The kosher animal has split hooves. In other words, our approach to earthly matters should be split into two. We embrace the good 
and distance the bat. The hoof is the part of the animal's body that's touching the ground, that's touching the earth. What that represents to us is when we are touching earth, when we are engaging in earthly matters, we need to have a split position. There's got to be two ways of approaching earthliness. There's the good parts of earth, which we need to get involved with. And then there are the bad parts of earth, which we need to shun and distance ourselves from. However, split hooves are not enough. We must also chew the cud. Before engaging in any material pursuit, we must chew our cud again and again to evaluate if and how we should approach it. Only then is our animal kosher. So there are two lessons here already in how we are supposed to live our lives as Jews. Number one, we need to realize that just because we're here on earth doesn't mean that everything that's here is for us to engage in and to enjoy and to eat. No, there are some things that are positive and there are things that are negative. We need to be attracted to the positive, engage the positive, and we must run away from and push away the negative. In addition to that, we also need to chew our cuds because even if you've determined that something is positive, and you should engage with that thing, you need to think it over again and again if you're doing it in a proper way and if what you're about to do is something that is in accordance with Jewish law. So that's with regard to, um, that's with regard to uh, the two signs of mammals. Now let's go to the fish. Now here is a, a teaching from Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, the Rebbe's father. You know, before we do that, let's go to page five. Let's go to page five, source five. The rabbis taught, any fish that has scales certainly has fins, but there are fish that have fins and do not have scales. Any fish that has scales and fins is kosher. If it has fins but no scales, it is not kosher. This is a quote from the, from the Talmud. Now, um, and by the way, one of the, what, what's a, a basic uh, ramification? A very practical thing. If you go to Costco and you want to buy salmon in Costco, you don't need to find, you want to buy fresh salmon, right? They took it, they filleted it, they cut it. Are you just allowed to buy any fish that was filleted and cut in Costco? The answer is, if the skin is still on the fish and you can see the scales on the, on the skin, you can buy that fish. You know for sure it's kosher. Even if you don't see any fins. Why? Because if a fish has scales, it certainly has fins. But if you, only, if you find a fish and it only has fins, and you don't see the scales there, then you don't know that it's a kosher fish. So if you go to Costco and you want to buy fresh, fresh salmon, you don't have to have one with a circle K or a circle U or any other type of Kosher certification, the fact that you see the skin with scales on it, that makes it kosher. So here the Talmud asks a very simple question. Now if we rely only on scales, let God write only scales and leave out fins altogether. Why does the Torah have to go and tell us there's two signs? There's scales, oh, and there's fins as well. By the way, it says fins before scales. It's another interesting anomaly here. If fins are essentially irrelevant, because scales is enough, because if it has scales, and for sure has fins. So why does the Torah mention both? And why does it mention fins first? 
Rabbi Abahu said, and it was also said in the study hall of Rabbi Yishmol, God included extra passages to make Torah great and glorious. Fascinating thing. There are some things that are other than Torah that really have no practical ramification. It's just there in order to, I don't want to use the word embellish, but in order to make Torah, to give more meat to the Torah. It's not just about scales. There's also fins, and you should know that if it has scales, it's got fins. This is when it comes to the halachic approach. In other words, in halacha, the Torah cannot find any good reason, I'm sorry, the Talmud cannot find a good reason, a halachic reason, why the Torah would specifically identify fins as a kosher sign. If scales is sufficient, you don't need fins. You don't need to mention fins. So on a halachic level, fins don't really have to be there. And they were just included there in order to give more meat to the Torah, to make Torah greater. But now we're going to learn a more deeper explanation, uh, which will give us a better appreciation of why the Torah did mention fins and why it mentioned fins first. So here comes a, a teaching from the Rebbe's father. Fins represent Torah. So, so the, the fish has fins and has scales. So the Rebbe's father is going to explain that we're all like fish. We all have fins and scales. What are the fins? What are the scales? Fins represent the Torah, which help the individual navigate the waters. We go with Torah. We swim with Torah. As the verse says, if you go in my commandments, which refers to Torah study. Like, look at, look at the world around you. The world around you could be compared to an ocean, to a, to a flood, right? There's so much going on. We're flooded with information. We're flooded with, with stuff happening. So how do you swim through the currents? That's what a fish does with its fins. It swims through the currents. The current is going one way, and the fish is going the other way. How do you know a fish is dead? If it's going with the river, if it's going with the current, then it's a dead fish. But if it's swimming against the current, then it's a living fish. And how does it do so? It does so with the fins. Same thing here. A Jew is not meant to just float with the current. It's meant to, a Jew is meant to swim. A Jew is meant to navigate the waters of life. How does one navigate the waters of life? Through Torah study. Torah instructs us how to behave wherever we may be, whenever it is. It teaches us what we are meant to do at any given time. Therefore, Torah is compared to fins. Scales represent the mitzvahs, which are generally represented by the mitzvah of charity. As the verse says, he donned charity like a coat of chain mail, which is an armor made of metal scales. I don't know if you've seen pictures of, you know, the armor that they would wear in the good old days, but it was essentially like, like a sheet of armor with, with little holes that were covered by small pieces of metal. For so, somehow that would make the, the armor more uh, durable and it would protect. Um, if it was a bunch of small pieces that were covering each other, that was a greater protection. So this is, uh, many times, the, the, the mitzvah of tzedakah is compared to that because you give tzedakah, you know, small amounts incrementally, and that basically causes a sheet of armor to protect you from all, of the, from all the currents, to protect you from everything that's going on. Essentially, the scales of the fish are there to protect the fish from the dirty waters, from stuff that's going on around it. They serve as a filter for what's going on in the waters. So mitzvahs are like a protective shield for the Jew. Fins are the Torah, mitzvot are the protective shield. They're the scales. Now comes the rule. 
whoever has scales has fins too. For without Torah, how does he know to perform mitzvahs? So if you see a Jew with scales, you see a Jew with mitzvahs, for sure this Jew has also got Torah somewhere, right? So for sure he's got fins. Only Torah study can bring about the resulting action. Therefore, if someone has mitzvahs, he clearly has Torah as well. However, you could have fins without scales. The Mishnah speaks of individuals who assume they could study Torah alone. So here we see, it's a fascinating thing. The Torah tells us there are two kosher signs. The Talmud tells us scales for sure has fins. Why does the Torah mention both? Eh, there's, there's no real need to mention fins. But here, but here we see just the opposite. The kosher signs of a fish are not just telling us what type of fish we could eat for dinner. They're also teaching us how we should live life as a Jew. Living life as a Jew necessitates both tools, the use of our fins and the use of our scales. The fins are Torah study, scales are mitzvahs. And what comes first? Torah study. And can we have one without the other? If you have mitzvahs, it must be that you've studied Torah. So scales without fins is impossible. Is it possible to have fins without scales? Yeah. It's possible to learn Torah and not do any mitzvahs. So here we see how the signs of the kosher fish are not just there to teach us how to eat. It's also teaching us how to behave. And following the concept of you are what you eat, the more we'll eat kosher fish, that will encourage us, hopefully, in some way, that we are going to make usage of both of these tools, the fins, Torah study, and the scales, which is the mitzvahs. Okay, now let's continue on to page five on the top, uh, which is an introduction to, uh, to the Rebbe's talk that we're going to be reading in just a moment. So here's a quote from Nachmanides. Uh, we're going back to the kosher signs of mammals. Any that has split hooves and that chews its cud. This first means that you may eat animals which have both signs, but not animals which have only one sign. He could have stated the law in general terms, but he singled out the camel, hyrax, and rabbit who only chew their cud, and the pig who only have split hooves, because no other animal in existence has only one sign. Technically speaking, in order for us to know what to eat and what not to eat. The Torah did not have to single out these four animals. The Torah just had to say, you have to split your split hooves, chew the cod, and that's good to eat. But the Torah was very specific. and said, not the camel, not the hyrax, not the rabbit, those only chew their cud. They don't have a split hoof. And not the pig, because the pig has split hooves, doesn't chew its cud. Only these four are the ones that have one and not the other. And you can't eat them as well. And Achmanides is pointing out and saying, the Torah is saying this in order to indicate that it's that in order to, to illustrate, let's put it that way, to illustrate that the Torah wasn't put together by smart people. Because how could you go ahead and say that there is only these that have one and not the other and nothing else? That's a very big statement to make. The Torah doesn't say there's only these. The Torah singles out these four as four that have one and not the other. So you can't suggest that the Torah is only bringing examples. To bring an example, you only have to bring one example of each. Bring the camel and bring the pig, and that's it. But the Torah is specific. He says the pig, the hyrax, the rabbit. These three 
chew their cud and don't have split hoofs. On the opposite spectrum, you only have the, the, the pig, only the pig has split hooves and doesn't chew its cud. Let's go to source number six. From the Rambam. If Jewish law imposes lashes for partaking in a forbidden food, that indicates that it is a biblical prohibition. For example, milk from a non-kosher animal or eggs of a non-kosher bird or fish. So, if you want to drink milk, you have to be sure that that milk came from a kosher animal. A cow, a goat, a sheep, in order to ensure that it didn't come from a non-kosher animal. Comes by Maimonides and says the following rule. Non-kosher milk will not congeal and solidify as kosher milk. If a mixture of non-kosher milk and kosher milk is made into cheese, the kosher milk will solidify and the non-kosher milk will be expelled together with the whey of the cheese. Accordingly, logic would di dictate that a Gentile's milk should be forbidden. Because if you go to a Gentile farmer and you say, please give me some milk, sell me some milk, you never know if they're going to sell you specifically cow's milk or if there might be camel's milk or pig milk or something like that. Therefore, purchasing milk from a, from a Gentile is prohibited lest he mixed non-kosher milk with it. But a Gentile's cheese should be permitted for non-kosher milk will not form cheese. Um, this actually brings to, uh, brings to mind the fact that there is this concept called Chalav Yisrael, uh, that the milk that we, that we drink, it has to be milk that a Jew was witness to the milking process and has seen how the cow or the goat or the sheep was milked, and this is the milk that comes from this cow or this sheep, and nothing else was mixed into it. Uh, but any non-kosher milk that's out there, you never know, it could be other things are mixed into it. Um, there, there is this concept that there are those that want to depend on the fact that here in America, you know, with the, with the government oversight, um, if you're selling something as cow's milk, then it's for sure going to be cow's milk and nothing else will be mixed into there. The only problem with that is that um, the, the government only is specific about certain percentages. Um, I don't know the exact amounts that are allowed or not allowed, uh, but I don't think you could take someone to court for selling you 100 gallons of milk with one gallon of pig milk mixed in. Um, that's, that's considered way too, uh, it, it's too little uh, to be considered non-cow's milk. And so therefore, it, it is actually very important that when we're drinking milk, to make sure that it is specifically milk that came from a cow. Um, but there are those that, that have allowed, specifically in America, uh, that you could drink milk that is not officially called Israel because we depend on the government. Uh, however, um, it is, it is uh, the, be the best way of keeping kosher is to be specific about what type of milk we drink as well. But when it comes to butter, for example, butter does not have to be specifically kosher because if it was from a non-kosher animal, it would not become butter. Uh, there are other issues with cheese, aside from the fact that, it, in other words, the issue with, with cheese being kosher or non-kosher has nothing to do with the milk issue. It's the, just the way the cheese is made there are kosher ways of making it, and there are non-kosher ways of making it. Um, anyway, so that, that, that's a conversation for itself. All righty. So now, based on all of these rules that we've learned about kosher, the Rebbe makes the following observation. Page six on the bottom. The laws in Maimonides regarding kosher food teach us a general lesson about the truth of Torah. 
These laws describe the kosher signs for all creatures, domestic animals, wild animals, birds, and fish. Obviously, these signs are aspects of the animal's physical features. Here we see a demonstration of the truthfulness of the Torah. Throughout the world, not a single animal has been discovered that contradicts these classifications. For example, Maimonides states regarding the signs for animals, every animal that chews the cud has split hoofs. Every animal that has split hoofs chews the cud, with four exceptions. The camel, pig, hyrax, and rabbit, who each have just one of those signs. Regarding fish, the Talmud tells us, any fish with scales will have fins. In fact, the Talmud poses the question, why didn't God simply list scales and leave out fins if it is impossible to have scales without fins? It answers simply to make Torah great and glorious. Regarding milk, Maimonides writes, non-kosher milk will not congeal and solidify as kosher milk. If a mixture of non-kosher milk and kosher milk is made into cheese, the kosher milk will solidify and the non-kosher milk will be expelled together with the whey of the cheese. This is an amazing phenomenon. Countless never-before-seen species have been discovered since the time we received the Torah, since the Mishnah and Talmud were compiled, and ever since Maimonides wrote his work. This is especially true since the discovery of the Americas, Australia, and other remote islands. They contain countless unique species which did not exist in the lands of the sages of the Mishnah, the Talmud, and of Maimonides. Nevertheless, the rules about animals written in the Mishnah and Talmud and cited by Maimonides continue to hold true regarding all the new animals discovered throughout the generations. Until today, not a single animal has been discovered that contradicts those principles. This serves as one of the clear demonstrations of Torah's truth and demonstrates God's glory in the words of our sages and ethics of our fathers. Everything God created in this world, he created only for his glory. All living creatures conform to the rules of the Torah because their entire existence comes from Torah. As stated in the Zohar, God looked into Torah and created the world. This is actually a very uh, interesting concept where we see that, that Torah is not an added spice to life. Torah is not a way to live life. Torah is life. The famous question, why does the Torah begin with creation? And the truth of the matter is, if you look at the Torah not as a book of law, but in fact as the blueprint of creation, then it makes sense. Where else should creation be discussed if not in the Torah? So Torah is life itself. Torah is the world. And everything in the world conforms with Torah. Sometimes we look at the world and we don't see it conforming with Torah. That's the way life is. But if we look a little deeper, we're going to see how everything in truth really conforms with Torah. What's the practical lesson? A very simple thing. Living life, it's important to make a living, right? It's important to make money and to feed our family, etc. person might think, the only way that I can make a living is if I work on Shabbos. The only way I can make a living is if I steal a little bit on the side, if I'm a little bit dishonest if I overcharge, comes, comes Torah and says, no, no, no. If you live here in this world and the fact of life is that you need to make a living, then if you keep all the laws of the Torah, if you do your business honestly, if you close your store on Shabbos, and you do everything exactly the way Torah wants, 
you'll be fine. Why? Because the business, the money, the whole economy essentially comes from Torah. So it's impossible that the economy and that life itself should be a contradiction to Torah itself. I'd like to end off with, uh, with a very interesting story that it, it kind of blows the mind a bit, but, but here's, here's how the story goes. So as we mentioned a little bit earlier in the class, that in addition to laws about uh, the type of animal that we're allowed to eat and also how it must be prepared, but there's also the laws that govern the health of the animal and determine if this is a healthy animal or not a healthy animal. And if you slaughtered an animal that has in it a problem that is considered non-kosher, considered treif, then you're not allowed to eat it. And if it is considered kosher, then you're allowed to eat it. So there was a, there was a Jew that came to a great Hasidic rabbi. I don't remember if it was, if it was a rabbi or, or another rabbi. I don't remember exactly who it was. But he had a certain health issue. He had a health issue. And uh, so the rabbi told him, he advised him to move to Israel. To move to Israel. He moved to Israel and he lived for many years. The doctors had told him that he's going to die very soon because of this health issue. Um, but he moved to Israel and uh, he lived for, for many, many years afterwards. And I don't know exactly how this came about, but someone explained what's the story. Here's the deal. Even in the laws of Trefa, there's, there's conversation about it. There's discussion between the great sages. What type of, what, what type of uh, illness is considered trefa? What is not considered trefa? And there's arguments dating all the way back to the Mishnah. And those arguments continued in the Talmud. And in fact, those arguments continue till, you know, even till today, there are differences of opinion about certain issues that one may find in the body of an animal that according to some, they'll say this is, this is, um, designated by the Torah as Trefa, and others will say, no, it's not Trefa. The Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, was authored by Rabbi Yosef Karo. Rabbi Yosef Karo was a great sage and a halachic authority that lived in the land of Israel. When he wrote his book called the Shulchan Aruch, this was accepted by all. However, as we know, there are different communities in Judaism. There's the Spartim, there's the Ashkenazim, and which basically was determined by where you lived, depending on which halachic authority was in your place. So there was a great halachic authority who lived in Poland. His name was Rabbi Moshe Israelis, who was known by his acronym Ramah. While he agreed with most of what Rabbi Yosef Karo wrote, he had certain disagreements with him. And so he wrote glosses on the Shulchan Aruch, glosses on the Code of Jewish Law, um, with his differences of opinion. And until today, if someone is from the Sephardi descent, they would go according to, the, to Rabbi Yosef Karo. Someone who's from Ashkenazic descent would go according to Rabbi Moshe Israelis. Um, and there's a lot to do with the place where you live. So, this rabbi, when he saw this Jew come in front of him and described to him the illness, this rabbi identified it as an illness, which Rabbi Yosef Karo and Rabbi Moshe Israelis disagree on whether this illness is fatal or not. Obviously, their discussion is not about a human being. The discussion is about a cow or about a sheep or something like that. But it's, it's, it's a certain type of illness, which is in animals and also in humans. Rabbi Moshe Israelis determined that this is an illness which is fatal. Rabbi Yosef Kara determined that this is an illness which is not fatal and that the animal could live many years afterwards without it. So the rabbi advised him to move to Israel. Why? Here in, 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 the, in Eastern Europe, 
Rabbi Moshe Isolis, he's the, he's the authority. He's in charge. So here Rabbi Moshe Isolis had set the halacha that this illness is fatal. But if you move to Israel, you're under a different authority. You're under the authority of Rabbi Yosef Karo. And Rabbi Yosef Karo was the one to determine that this illness is not fatal, so you'll be good to go. Anyway, it, 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 this is not the way you should uh, conduct your medical... Uh, this, this is not typical medical behavior. And, and it's not necessarily a logical one. This obviously, obviously was a big miracle from this rabbi. And, you know, he suggested he go to the land of Israel. And obviously his blessing and his prayers worked. But it's interesting how he kind of related it to the laws of kosher and to the differences of opinion between rabbis that have effect in certain places at different times. Be it as it may, the point that we are making here is that, number one, the laws of kosher are really chukim. They're beyond their understanding. They're beyond logic. And therefore, in order to keep a kosher diet. It's not about understanding the differences between kosher and non-kosher. It's about knowing what is the Torah and what does the code of Jewish law tell us about what is kosher and what is not kosher. With that being said, all of these things that essentially don't make sense with regard to the science or the halachic uh, implications of how to do and how not to do, technically you could eat kosher fish if you only know that it has to have scales because fins is essentially irrelevant. But the reason why fins was included was in order to teach us something about ourselves and to teach us something about the world. You'll never find a fish that has scales without fins. You'll never find animals that contradict it. You'll never find milk that comes from a non-kosher animal that congeals. This has a lot of ramifications and it also just gives us another reminder of how all of reality is essentially sourced in Torah, and therefore, in order to properly navigate reality, in order to live the most wholesome and beautiful life, in order to do so, one should look into the Torah and see how the Torah instructs us to do so. Thank you all for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you again uh, next week. This class, the class of the Rebbe Sichel, will be on Sunday, not on Tuesday. It's going to go back to the regular schedule of Sunday at 3.30. I look forward to seeing you there. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome.